Come join the zone in ARUP Thursday from noon to 3 at ARUP Blood Services on 9786 South 500 West. Come save a life and donate some blood. It only takes 30 minutes and you'll receive a Megaplex gift card, popcorn voucher, and jazz gear. PK, we know you love to dismiss the importance of bowl games. Teams are shorthanded. Sometimes coaches are gone. Sometimes guys who are headed to the NFL are gone. And so the teams, yeah, you got the logo, but you don't really have the team. Having said that, USC getting smoked by Iowa was not a good look for the Pac-12. Washington State losing Air Force wasn't good. Washington did beat Boise State. Uh, I guess the question is how many Pac-12 teams are going to show up and win. And You really only repair the conference's, uh, the conference's reputation by going to the playoff and then winning playoff games once you're there. But all they can do right now is win their bowl games this offseason. And, man, USC got drilled. Okay, tell me how this works. SC finishes at best third in the conference, and they get a team that's ranked and has won nine games. Utah finished second in the conference, and they get a team that's won seven games. That's a joke. It's not a fair fight. Yes, and I think it has, uh, and we can ask our next guest about this, I think it has something to do with uh, the politics of Texas and Texas A&M and their rivalry splitting up, and they didn't want to play. And would Texas have gone to Houston to play A&M, and then Oklahoma State shows up in the Alamo Bowl? Maybe that would have been a different deal because Oklahoma State's better than Texas. Uh, Maybe that would have upgraded it a little bit. Well, whatever, but SC gets hosed, and they get beaten, and then it's more Clay Helton sucks. Meanwhile, Utah, which finished with a better record, I realize they lost, but they finished with a substantially better record. They play a seven and five team. That just doesn't make any sense to me. Texas is seven and five, bolstered a little bit by the fact they have played three top ten teams, so you would expect them to lose those games. Uh, but there are a couple other games in there that they lost that uh, make you think they're just not all that. Kalen Jones. Texas Longhorns writer for The Athletic. Joining us now on 97.5 and 1280 The Zone. He's on the Sprint special guest line. Lease any phone and get an iPad or Samsung Tab A for $99.99. Visit the Sprint store nearest to you. Kalen, good morning. Good morning, guys. How are you? We're good. And we are curious. How good is Texas? Because it looked like they might be good early in the season. They were 4-1. and one. The loss was to LSU. It was certainly respectable. But they lost two of the last three, three of the last five. What happened the second half of the season? Oh, man. Well, I mean, that's a good question. I think te- Texas, you know, t- in terms of talent, they probably should have been a top 15, you know, fringe top 10 team just in terms of the talent that they possess. But, you know, as you mentioned, like, they started off the season hot. Their offense looked extremely good, helped them, you know, hang in there with LSU, who's now playing a national title. But um, over the second half of the season, the offense lost its firepower. I mean, the defense was always going to be a question mark. They were replacing eight uh, defensive starters from a season ago. They lost their number one pass rusher in Charles Menehue. And, you know, it, it was going to be a problem, especially once the injuries started taking a toll on their defense. However, you know, that being said, um, there was no real signs of great improvement. There were signs over the last couple games that the defense might, you know, be heading in the right direction, but they were still struggling really mightily. And, you know, coupled with the fact that the offense just began, you know, struggling with this fit of inconsistency over the past six games, especially when you talk about uh, the passing game and Sam Ellinger being affected by, you know, an offensive line that, relinquished 33 sacks, and then just his own, 
you know, inability sometimes to get rid of the ball on time contributed to that, and receivers just being unable to, you know, get separation downfield. There's just a culmination of factors, and coaches talked about that a lot and what played a role in Texas struggling over the final stretch of the season. But, you know, again, like I said, like when they're at their best and they've, you know, players and coaches have expressed this before, they feel like they can hang with anybody in the country. I mean, you look at the one loss, or excuse me, one score losses to both LSU and Oklahoma this year. But, you know, when the problem is Texas got in its own way a lot throughout the year. All right, so when you look at this matchup, they haven't run the ball that well. Their leading rusher doesn't even have 750 yards. And Ellinger thrown for 3,500, and they got a receiver at 1,300. And Utah has historically been very difficult to run the ball against, and this year it seems to be the case. So is it going to be a situation where Texas, if they're going to have success offensively, is going to be through the air? Well, yeah, that's where they're going to have to find success. As you mentioned, yeah, Texas just has not been able to run the football with, you know, any type of effectiveness. You know, in 2018, excuse me, um, they, I believe they finished within the top 10 of Power 5 school in terms of rushing attempts. This year, they finished, I believe, 57. So, and just their identity as an offense has completely changed and it's shifted. Luckily, you know, the Longhorns do boast Sam Ellinger. They're expected to get Colin Johnson, who's a star senior, a uh, receiver was on the cusp of getting a thousand yards last year, and then, as you mentioned, they have a thousand yard receiver in Devin Duvernay who led the country in receptions. Um, so they'll be able to manufacture some production out of the passing game, but it, that is provided they're able to protect the quarterback. You know, Bradley and I is one of the best you know defensive linemen in the country. Uh, you know, Utah's front three, excuse me, down linemen are, are considered you know probably the best in the country, or at least a you know, up there in terms of elite groups. So it's going to be tough sledding for Texas. I, I don't know what, you know, to expect really just because, again, they, they've been so inconsistent over this, you know, final stretch of the year after looking so sharp early on. So you talked about the uh, defense was always going to be a work in progress because they had to replace so many guys. But at the end of the year when they're losing games – Iowa State 23-21, Baylor 24-10. Those, those don't look like bad defensive performances. Utes are going to want to run the ball. Do you think Moss is going to have a big game running the ball against them? You know, I've been contemplating that because when you look at what Texas was able to do against, you know, Chuba Hubbard at the beginning of the season, or excuse me, in week four against Oklahoma State, you know, holding him to his season low in terms of rushing, um, you know, that, that's a positive performance. And Texas's defense is designed, you know, primarily to stop, you know, they, to perform well against rushing offenses. That's one of the top principles that Todd Orlando, who's now the fire defense coordinator, that, that was number one in terms of his principles and goals for what he tries to accomplish defensively. So there's a chance that Texas can hang in there and, you know, provided that they're able to hold their own at the line of scrimmage. And Texas has a lot of depth along the defensive line, I think linebacker is still an issue. But, you know, in terms of holding their own, I, I mean, unless they allow Zach Moss to get on the edge consistently and out in the space, um, then they could have some issues. But um, I think that, you know, Zach Moss, just in terms of volume, will probably rush for 150 yards. But it comes down to how effective those, that yardage is and how meaningful it is in terms of, you know, being efficient and helping Utah get down the field. Uh, I think that it's going to be, you know, a little bit closer of a game than it's probably being projected as right now. Why does uh, why does Herman fire both the coordinators? 
Well, offensively, you know, he wanted someone who's able to call plays. Tim Beck, he had to, he reassigned Tim Beck in, to uh, being the quarterback's coach through the, the bowl game. You know, primarily because he, you know, unfortunately Herman had to have his hand involved in so much of the play calling, and it took away from his ability to be more of a CEO type coach. He wants to establish relationships with players. He talks about that all the time, and you know how important that is. And there were reports of dysfunction within the locker room. I mean, throughout the middle of the season, and you know, young guys having to be on the same page with the older guys who understood how important the season was, and. You know, he Herman wants to be able to, you know, manage all of that in addition to having, you know, someone who he can entrust with maximizing the offense and putting his team in the best position possible. And then defensively, you know, even as you mentioned, Texas looked improved over the last four games defensively. There were definitely signs, you know, of improvement. Um, I don't know how encouraging that was, but, you know, that being said, uh, when we asked Herman, you know, why he decided to fire Todd Orlando, considering how, you know, defense had you know, shown some signs of improvement through the last little bit, uh, he said that, you know, over the past two years, the Longhorns have ranked, you know, amongst the worst in several important offensive, or excuse me, several important defensive categories. And, you know, it, it just, at the end of the day, he just didn't see enough improvement he needs to you know, someone who we can trust to maximize the potential and the talent that he has available. Todd Orlando's scheme, which involves a three-down front, uh, really doesn't tap into that defensive line depth that I mentioned earlier. And, you know, that being said, it's a really complicated scheme. You know, players and coaches called, hailed Todd Orlando as being a defensive genius just a season ago. But that being said, it's too complicated for younger guys who are just getting into the system and being thrown into the fray so early in their career. Kalen Jones joining us, Texas Longhorns writer for The Athletic. There's certainly been a lot of talk lately about uh, teams that want to be in bowl games, teams that don't want to be there. Ute fans remember the Sugar Bowl. Alabama famously didn't want to be there after they lost the game. How motivated is Texas for this game? How much is, is a disappointing season? They just want to be done with it and move on? And how much are they looking like, hey, we win this, get an eighth win, and it launches us into the offseason, and they're highly motivated. So a lot of the defensive guys talk about, you know, Todd Orlando firing definitely giving them some motivation. You know, they, they want to prove that, hey, like, you know, we're, we're good enough when they play at the, you know, their highest level. Offensively, I think there is something to prove there, too, because you have so many senior contributors. Um, you know, and then the Longhorns are headed by Captain uh, Sam Ellinger, who is a natural competitor. And, you know, one of the things that I've told fans a lot is that, when you watch Texas on film, it's not uh, for a lack of effort. You know, I wouldn't say that there's ever been really a point where the team has looked checked out. I would say that it's just a matter of execution and, you know, again, play calling and being put in a position to succeed. Um, I, I think that Texas you know, is going to show some fight in this one, especially when you consider the fact that it's a home game, essentially. You're an hour away from your home campus and going to have some semblance of a home field advantage. Um, and, you know, again, just like last year, I, I won't compare it on the same level as winning a New Year's, New Year's Six Bowl game, but you're playing a, a highly ranked opponent who's pretty talented. And I, I think if you look at Texas, they have a chance to prove, hey, this is what they're capable of when they're playing at their best. And, you know, they, they have a real opportunity to do that once again. You know, a lot of the players say that they pride themselves on putting their best foot forward. So I think that you know, that's their motivation going in. I don't think that would be checked out at all for this matchup. 
How about Texas fans? How checked in are they going to be? <laughs> That's a good question. I mean, they're definitely interested just because, you know, it's Texas football. You know, diehard Texas fans are going to be checked, you know, checked into the matchup. You know, it's not a New Year's Six Bowl game. It's, you know, there's definitely some disappointment there that Texas didn't end up, you know, reaching the goals and the heights that were expected of the program this year. But, again, like, it's, it's going to be a pretty good matchup. I mean, typically the Alamo Bowl, I think they, the, their social team threw out a stat, I think, early in the month that I think the past five matchups have been decided by four points or fewer. So I, I don't see how this contest ends up being anything different. I think it should end up being a really good game. So I read a little bit, but it wasn't fully explained in what I read, and maybe you can fill us in. Was there a chance that Texas wasn't going to be in the Alamo Bowl, that they were going to end up playing Texas A&M, where there's some politics there that maybe impacted which Big 12 team ended up where? <laughs> uh, I mean, if, if Texas had been offered it, I'm sure they would have, you know, strongly considered it. But, again, there, there's been a rift between Texas and Texas A&M leadership um, you know, over the past you know year or so, ever since Texas A&M ended up in the SEC. So I really doubt it was likely or ever even a real possibility that Texas would have played A&M in the Texas Bowl. Um, but, you know, that being said, I think that they'd much rather have played, you know, Utah as opposed to uh, an A&M opponent this year. We saw Utah really get beat up in the trenches against Oregon, which is something that doesn't happen. I mean, it hardly ever happens. That was the big story in the Pac-12 title game as they got beat up. So you talk about Texas having some incentive. I think Utah up front on both sides of the ball, but particularly on uh, offense to make sure that they go ahead and play the way the way they're supposed to play. How do you think defensively Texas is going to be able to handle the trenches against Utah's offense? Yeah, so like like I mentioned earlier, I think Texas has pretty good defensive line depth. Um, the issue is, you know, they, they have their schematics don't really allow them to maximize that. And their their defense will end up being deployed in the same 3-3-5 you know, formation that they've been using before. So now you only have three down linemen going up against a really, really stout and talented Utah offensive line. Um, I think that could end up being an issue. But, you know, that being said, you know, Texas has shown that they can hold their own against talented running backs throughout the season. There's just been inconsistent play. And, you know, Utah definitely has an advantage. You know, I'm definitely uh, aware of that. It's just that I think that, you know, if Texas plays at the level that is capable of playing, then, you know, it'll be a much, you know, different conversation as opposed to saying Utah's going to, you know, run all over them for about 300 yards. I think that, you know, the possibility that Zach Moss certainly is going to find success. You know, I've been watching him for four years because I used to cover Arizona State at the Pac-12. So I'm definitely familiar and aware of what Utah's capable of. Um, just that being said, I've seen Texas too play when you know it's playing consistently well. Is pretty good at slowing down the run, so we'll see. The Utes' best cornerback is a junior and is leaving for the NFL early and will not play in the bowl game. Normally, I think it'd be a lock; he'd be locked up on Duvernay, who's got almost 1,300 yards receiving. And now it'll be interesting to see how the Utes handle this now because uh, we don't really have any anything to go on. Uh, Duvernay 
speed threat, uh, good at going over the middle? Did he throw him a lot of short stuff and try to get him one-on-one and just stiff-arm the corner and throw him to the ground? What, what do they do with him? How, how has he gotten to 1,300 yards? <laughs> well, it's a very, very high-volume position that he was transitioned over to. He started his career um, on the outside, and Texas is kind of an X or Z role. Um, but they moved him over to the slot this year in the H. Uh, the year before, Lil Jordan Humphrey, who ended up leaving early, he he ended up uh, leading the team in receiving and went over a thousand yards last year. Um, so it's it's just a high volume position, especially for this year. The way that Texas got Duvernay the ball was a lot through the RPO actions um, on a lot of bubble screens. And you mentioned over the middle; that's really where he thrives when going downfield. Uh, Duvernay isn't the sharpest route runner, but he's very solid. Uh, once he, after the catch, he's extremely effective too. Like in terms of straight line speed, uh, this is a guy who ran a ten-two-seven hundred-meter dash uh, when he was back in high school. So he has elite speed, and you put couple that with you know very incredible strength, considering he's only like five nine, five ten, two hundred and ten pounds. Um, he's a very strong player, and so. And the way that he's been able to, you know, beat opponents is with this speed going downfield, and a lot of his successes come after the catch. So as long as, you know, Utah is making tackles in space and, you know, closing him down at the line of scrimmage, they should have a pretty decent time slowing him down. It'll just be the weapons on the outside that they'll really have to be concerned about. So you say you covered Arizona State. What was it like to cover the next college football powerhouse in the Sun Devils? <laughs> oh man, that, it was fun. It was definitely fun. Uh, you know, like I, I tell the guys here at Texas, you know, they they just uh, have a lot of access where you be able to talk to anybody. And you know, the team itself was very very interesting to cover because the last year I was there was during Todd Graham's final year um, when they transitioned over to Herm Edwards. So it, it was completely different experience from covering Texas, obviously, but. You know, it was definitely a great time. I actually missed it. I can't even lie. <laughs> Full disclosure, PK. Go ahead and tell him. Uh, I figured you would. <laughs> PK's a sun devil. <laughs> ah. <laughs> there you go. Loves all things. Fear the fork. Loves all things ASU. Yeah, I'm gonna. I, it's going to be tough. But I'm going to drive over. I'm in San Antonio now. I'm going to drive over for the Sun Bowl and then make it back in time for kickoff in San Antonio. Oh, wow. <laughs> Just kidding. Good luck to you, man. <laughs> All right. Well, Kalen, we appreciate a little bit of your time. Thanks for joining us. And uh, we'll see you at the Alamo Bowl. Of course, guys. Thank you guys for having me. Appreciate it. Kalen Jones. Texas Longhorns writer for The Athletic. Join us here on 97.5 and 1280 The Zone.